Perhaps you've heard of shapeshifters. It is um, referenced in literature and storytelling throughout all time. This idea that one thing exists as a specific thing, but it can shapeshift into something different. Think of man to werewolf, or in a fairy tale where the frog is actually a princess. Um, someone told me just a little while ago from the 8 o'clock surface there's a shapeshifter in Harry Potter. Maybe that's what comes to your mind. I think of evil as a shapeshifter. It takes on different forms, and so it doesn't quite um, look obvious to us when we initially see it. And I would define evil as anything which diminishes something from its fully, what it's created to fully be. So in relationship to humans, evil dehumanizes us. It makes us think less of our humanity, and it diminishes what it means to be fully human. With the created order, evil exploits it and um, uses it, limits its creative ability, pillaging it, raping it of its resources that prevent it from being generative, what creation is intended to be, which is generative, to create. With animals and other things that aren't plant life, we might think of it as um, enslaving those particular creatures to service in a way that diminishes its capacity to be fully what it was created to be. So that's how I'm going to talk about evil today. Evil is something that diminishes the full potential of what something has been created to be. And it shapeshifts throughout time. I think of this in regard to um, some of the social evils that we have in our day and age. In 2013, there was a ruling by the Supreme Court entitled Shelby County versus Holder in which the Voting Rights Act was brought before the court and it was um, diminished in some capacity in relationship to voting. The, the teeth of the Voting Rights Act was removed from it, saying that in order now, um, any state who wants to change its voting laws does not have to seek federal approval for changing laws and regulations. The Voting Rights Act said it did, especially in relationship to places where people had been marginalized or prejudiced against. Those states had to seek federal approval to change any voting rights and regulations. In 2013, this decision by the Supreme Court changed that. But the, there are still challenges in people getting to the polls, and they do adversely affect some populations more than others. Another example of racism's continued prevalence in our society has to do with a research a, a study done by the Pew Foundation in 2018, which looked at prison population in relationship to general population of our country. In the general population of the United States, blacks make up 12%. Hispanics, 16%, and whites, 64%. Yet in prisons, blacks make up 33% of those inmates, Hispanics, 23%, and whites, 30%. I don't know what else to call it but racism. When a group of people is made assumptions in relationship to that entire ethnic group, and maybe things are not, um, benefit of the doubt is not given to particular people because of particular characteristics. 
Now, I acknowledge a sermon it puts you at a disadvantage because it's a one-way direction. So feel free to call me if you want to dialogue about this. But I don't know what else to call it. Back in when this Supreme Court made this decision in 2013 in regard to the Voting Rights Act, they said, well, times have changed since 40 years ago. And I would say, yes, they have. But evil shapeshifts. It changes and reveals itself in new ways in our society. I'm keenly aware of this as a woman and the journey of women in this country. This is Women's History Month. And I feel very conscious of the fact that I stand on the shoulders of women who have gone before me. When I hear of some of the things they've endured, I am filled with disbelief. I mean, at least now on a job application, I don't have to write down the date of my last menstrual cycle, which was how it used to be. So things have changed. But what remains also true is that on average, women are paid 80 cents on the same work that a man is paid a dollar for. When the former Prime Minister of Australia, Julie Gillard, left her position in 2013, having been the Prime Minister for only three years, she did so because of some of the, the pushback she was getting about her particular gender. I heard her interviewed yesterday and a few recordings of things that were said to her, and I was filled with disbelief that this happened just, just recently, in this last decade. When she left her position as Prime Minister, she got into relationship with King's College of London, and in 2016 became a part of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. So if things have changed so much, why do we need a Global Institute for Women's Leadership? It seems to me that the evil that diminishes people, and in this particular scenario, women, has shape-shifted. It's not the same issues that our mothers and fathers fought for on behalf of women. I think about white supremacy, and I think, didn't we fight about that in World War II? I thought we finished that job. And yet we see this idea that there's a race that has a priority or a prominence over others just by the ethnic origin. That's what white supremacy is. I don't know what else you would call it. Evil shapeshifts. When I talk with parents um, as they prepare for baptism, we talk about the forces of evil and wickedness that rebel against God and, um, and do you refuse Satan and all the evil, evil powers in this world. And I have a fun question that I say to the parents as they're gathered around in anticipation of this significant day. I say to them, can you tell me what the devil looks like? And there is a silence in the room. You can feel their feeling, oh no, do I know this answer? Am I supposed to know this answer? Is there a right answer to this? I relieve them or attempt to relieve them of their agony of trying to think of what the answer is. I say, I don't know, is it with the red horns? Or is it red? Is the devil red? Have horns and a pitchfork? I mean, is that what the devil looks like? My friends, I think if that's what the devil looks like, we would, we would recognize it. We would see evil coming from a mile away, and we would say, don't come near us. The evil shapeshifts and diminishes that, the, what something is created to be, it diminishes it. So I'm not talking about politics here. I'm talking about people. It diminishes the personhood of individuals. It diminishes the personhood of a group of people. And I think that's what was happening to Jesus out in the wilderness. For 40 days he was out there tempted by Satan. 
Wouldn't you think that after the first time when he resisted the temptation of Satan, he would have said on the second time, oh yeah, remember I defeated you yesterday. Bye-bye. Would he not have been not tempted if it showed up the exact same way? It makes me wonder, how did the evil one present himself to Jesus in these temptations? Did he come as a hungry man with a stone and say to Jesus, I command you to turn this stone into bread? Is that how the evil one showed up in that temptation? When he took Jesus to show him all the kingdoms of the world and say, I will give you all of these, was he dressed in regal robes? Did he look like a king? When he took Jesus up to the precipice and invited him to throw himself off, reminding him that the angels would come and lift him up, how did he get up there? Was it maybe an angel that brought him up there? Evil shapeshifts. And yes, times have changed from when we fought it before, but evil has changed too. I think this is why we like superhero movies. That's shape-shifting in the positive form, and we wish we could shape-shift. Maybe become like liquid mercury and go underneath the doors and then be built into a human again and to fight the evil forces that we're facing. We need something to fight the shape-shifting nature of evil. And my friends, the good news is that love shape-shifts too. Love shape-shifts too. It goes into places that other things can't reach. The brokenness, the vulnerabilities, the cracks and crevices, the injuries, the horrors, the fears. There is no place that love will not go. It shapeshifts into what we need in order to fight the evils that we see in this world. And we wonder, how do we access the power of this shape-shifting love? And we do it through prayer. That's how Jesus did it, and that's how we do it. By engaging in prayer, regularly, daily, so that we can remember who we are and whose we are. If you recall, when Jesus went out into the wilderness, it was right after his baptism, when he heard God say very clearly to him, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And then he goes into the wilderness, and it is through prayer that he remembers, that's right, that's who I am. The evil one will not diminish me. I will not prevent the evil one to tempt me into thinking I'm less than who God has made me to be. It is in prayer that we remember ourselves. You may have heard of um, desert fathers and mothers. The desert fathers and mothers were people in the end of the third century who resided as hermits out in the deserts of Egypt and were wise ones through their prayer and asceticism, devoted themselves to knowing more fully the abundant love of God. It kind of looks like what we see in cartoons when people make long treks to someone in, in just flowing robes that sits there cross-legged, ready to receive someone with the ultimate question. And so there are writings from the Desert Fathers and Mothers that are those kind of writings. And I want to share one with you today. This is one um, in which people talk to Abba Agathon, Abba meaning father. The brethren asked Abba Agathon, amongst all the different activities, father, which, which is the virtue that requires the greatest effort? 
And he answered, Forgive me, but I think there is no labor greater than praying to God. For every time a man wants to pray, his enemies, the demons, try to prevent him. For they know that nothing obstructs them so much as prayer to God. In everything else that a man undertakes, if he perseveres, he will attain rest. But in order to pray, a man must struggle to his last breath. Does anything in this resonate with you? It does with me. How hard it is to make time for prayer. Maybe you were going to do it in the morning, but you overslept and the time got away from you. Maybe you were going to do it right before you got to the office, but the commute was more difficult than you expected and you're late. Maybe you were going to have your prayer time at lunch, but the day was so busy that you ended up not even eating lunch. Maybe you were going to pray right before you got home, and when you pulled into the driveway, before you got out of the car, but you were on a call, and that time disappeared. Maybe you were going to pray right before dinner, but dinner was eaten in haste, or maybe with other people. Or maybe you were going to pray right before you went to bed, but you fell asleep in the chair. All of these ways that prayer is sabotaged and diminished. And when that happens, we forget who we are. And we don't recognize evil in the ways that we need to. And so we are tempted in ways that we pray that we'll never be. It's in prayer that we remember who we are and whose we are. It's abundantly available to us. I'm going to share with you some other words from another saint who has gone before us. Jeremy Taylor. He was um, a priest uh, in the 1600s, an Anglican priest, and has been referred to as the Shakespeare of his time as clergy. Here are some words he says in prayer about prayer. There is no greater proof in the world of our spiritual danger than the reluctance which most people always have, and all people sometimes have, to pray. So weary of their length, so glad when they are done, so clever to excuse and neglect their opportunity. Yet prayer is nothing but desiring God to give us the greatest and best things we can have and that can make us happy. It is work so easy, so honorable, and so great a purpose that God has never given us a greater argument of his willingness to have us saved and our unwillingness to accept it of his goodness and our gracelessness, of his infinite condescension coming close to us and our folly. He's never given us a greater argument than by rewarding so easy a duty with such great blessings. Now I acknowledge that that might be hard to conceive of just upon hearing at one time. But what Jeremy Taylor is trying to say is, God comes close to us time and again. In prayer, God has set the table. God has prepared the room, is waiting for us to come and to sit in the midst of the living God to receive all that we have been given, our salvation among them. And yet, and yet, in the litany of penitence that's prayed on Ash Wednesday, We confess all sorts of things. 
We did it in the great litany just a moment ago, but there are some beautiful words in the litany of penitence. In fact, I know all of you weren't here on Wednesday. Wink, wink. So let's just get out the book of prayer, of common prayer real quick. I want you to turn to the litany of penitence in there. On page 267 of the Book of Common Prayer. These beautiful words capture us. When we remember that we haven't loved God with our whole heart, if we had, we would have made time for prayer. We've been deaf to to God's call to serve as Christ served us something we would have heard if we were sitting in prayer. We um, are subject to pride and hypocrisy and impatience with our very own lives when in prayer God invites us to let go of that. Our self-indulgent appetites and ways, our exploitation of other people, something we would have been cognizant of if we were in prayer. Our anger at our own frustrations, our intemperate love of worldly goods and comforts, our dishonesty, our negligence in prayer and worship, all of these things we confess. And God says, come and sit with me in prayer. These things won't trip you up when you start and end and find yourself in me. My friends, the season of Lent is an invitation to prayer. Daily, regular prayer. That's what we're invited to. Every day during the season of Lent, so that we might come to remember who we are and whose we are, and that the temptations of the evil one lose some of their power, because it's only through the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of his shape-shifting love that we can live fruitfully, fully, for who we're made to be in this world. The invitation to Lent is one of prayer, and I invite you to accept it. Amen.